Walked right out of the machinery. Chapter 4 The gate room smells of machine oil and disinfectant scrubbed concrete, but through it, he catches the ever-present ozone scent of the chapai itself, like wet ash and thunderstorm air, universes colliding like pressure fronts, familiar across a thousand worlds. He will not regret leaving this place. The host will, though. If he were leaving permanently, which he's not. This is just a stopgap until this whole mess gets sorted out. Under the bravado of the thought, sadness, and the maddening whiplash of anger and denial as soon as it's perceived, that is becoming familiar also. He's the only one of the crowd assembled in the gate room not to have a rutsack or bag. Even the Tok'ra have their bags slung across their shoulders like interstellar bike messengers. But there is nothing he wants to hold on to so badly that he'd be willing to let the snake near it. If the SGC decide it's easier to make him dead on paper, his will's up to date and on file. Sarah gets the house. He figures she'll probably sell the cabin. There's a stash of letters tucked in the back of his locker, behind the metal tin of photos. Has been for years. But most of the people who matter know where he's gonna be anyway. In a corner... Carter's team are saying goodbye to their pet snake. Malek's back in the brown leathers. And thank God for small mercies that being toker on paper doesn't extend to having to wear the damn uniform. The Tolkien elf look's never done anything for him. Malek's hands are clasped behind his back, pale face severe. Even speaking quietly... That organ-pipe voice is audible halfway across the room. Major Carter, it has been a privilege to serve with the Ta'ari. I did not expect. He pauses and frowns, a muscle twitching in one cheek. Carter's wearing the polite smile that he's seen pasted onto her face through a thousand interminable alien speeches. It has been... An illuminating experience, and I only hope that... That's when Satterfield tackles him like the world's smallest linebacker, body slamming into him hard enough to rock him back on his heels, wrapping her arms around his chest and hanging on. His face freezes, then races through shock and outraged dignity before the poker up his ass dissolves, and he reaches an arm cautiously round her shoulders to return the hug. She leans comfortably against him, laughing. Then the mood's broken, and they can all be easy with each other again. Green slaps him on the back, all earnest man to alien approbation. Carter's smile turns genuine, proud of her team and he knows damn well that it can't have been easy to pull together a mixed team, humans and aliens, not with SGC and the council breathing down their necks and everyone waiting for them to fail. Malik drops his head to his chest, then looks up without the arrogance, eyes widening. But it's still a surprise when he says a few words, human-voiced, he was never at Risa Long, but he has never heard Malik's host speak in public before. Too soft for him to overhear, though he catches the faint stammer and sees Satterfield lift her head to listen, not laughing anymore. Carter steps closer and squeezes his arm. Remarkable that she can overcome her prejudices enough to work with them. After what Jolinar did to her, even distinguishing Tok'ra and Gwawuld is beyond most unblended humans. Satterfield releases him reluctantly. 
Your memory will be kept among us, she says solemnly. It's only the thickness of her accent that jolts him into realizing that she's speaking Guauld, softening the words more than a native speaker would. And that startles him less than her use of the formal mode of speech between equals, less than the host's smug certainty that it's not an error. Then she switches back to broad American and adds with a grin, Don't be a stranger, okay? Alec bows his head to her. When he lifts it again, his eyes flash, and he steps back from them to join the small group assembling at the side of the ramp. Reynolds and Petrowski and their teams have already said more restrained farewells to their resident aliens. Then, the last chevron locks, and the event horizon boils up out of nothing and crashes back into a silver pool. The Tok'ra and the few human personnel bound for the Alpha site start filling up the ramp. Toran sweeps through without looking back. He hasn't looked over once since he set foot in the room. The ripples swallowed the outbound travelers one by one, and his feet are still glued to the floor. Carter is hovering again. She hasn't visited since the thing with Reed, but he's got no idea if that was her call or Hammond's. And now her face says that she's trying to work up the courage to say something. In the end, though, all she says is, Goodbye, sir. Hey, you could have said au revoir at least, he protests mildly. Right, sir. At least she's smiling as she walks him to the gate ramp. Say hi to Teal'c and Dad for me. Ripples crisscross and bounce off each other on the event horizon, like a swimming pool that's been balanced on its side, like he's standing with his feet on the wall, about to fall. On the ramp, he turns and looks up to meet Hammond's eyes beyond the glass. It's been an honor, sir. Then he steps through the wormhole and feels his body dissolve into stinging sleet, blown through the dark between the stars. At Alpha Site, it's early morning. The sun's barely edged past the tree line, and the ground is still cold and wet with dew soaking the edges of his boots. Once you hit gate lag, you never bitch about jet lag ever again. The sight's not much different from the last time he saw it. A patch of rocky ground blasted and bulldozed flat, a shallow bowl carved out from the flinty hills in the forest. But there are at least three times as many Quonset huts now, with a thicket of solar panels balancing on spindly poles between them, plus a clump of tents which have got to belong to the Jaffa, unless SGCs decided to go in for the Renaissance Fair look. Looks like there's been a population boom, and he's guessing it's not a human one. They've never kept more than a skeleton crew at the Alpha site, just enough personnel to keep it habitable, in case they need to fall back there, plus a few scientists doing the sort of research that SGC'd rather keep off of Earth in case they blow up Colorado by mistake. The welcome parties mixed too, Major Pierce, Bertak, and Jacob. No sign of Teal'c, but Ragnar's tagging along behind Bertak. At least no one's paying too much attention to him. They're all too busy meet and greeting splitting off into different groups and heading off into the camp. Bertak goes straight over to Malik and clasps his arm, Jaffa warrior style. And what the hell? Got to be a story there. It's good to see you again. We have had some altercations of late, and I would value your assistance in resolving them. I hold no rank here until I am reassigned. Stiff and wary, evidently the poker's back in place again. Bertak makes his humming little noise of consideration, 
like a Mack truck contemplating whether it's going to run you down or not. But some of the Tok'ra will listen to you nonetheless, yes? Looks like whatever happened when the Tok'ra arrived at the Alpha site, it involved Malik learning the hard way that you do not argue with Grandmaster B. He follows Pratak meekly off towards one of the rows of huts. Tok'ra following Jaffa. A frisson of disturbance. Disapproval? Along his nerves. Something he did not expect to see in his lifetime. He heads over to Pierce. A good guy, even if he's not exactly what you'd call imaginative. It's some reassurance to know that someone decent is heading up the show, even if no one's actually in charge of the asylum. Major, you want to tell me where I'm billeted? Pierce stares at him before jerking to attention and snapping off a reasonably clean salute. Sir! At ease, Major. Pierce is still staring at him, the whites of his eyes showing like a nervous horse. Sir, uh... Apparently, the part of Pierce's brain assigned to military courtesy has short-circuited and taken the rest with it. Credit where credit's due. He's not sure there ever was a protocol for interacting with a senior officer who's crazy, has a snake in his head, and might accidentally kill you with his bare hands if you look at him wrong. Uh, sir, you're assigned to the Tok'ra, sir. Oh, for crying out loud, on paper. Yes, sir. However, they've been insistent. Sir, with all due respect, we've got a situation here. The Tok'ra and the Jaffa are getting on better than they were, but the last thing we need is another flashpoint. Sir. Hell, it's not like he can't recognize a request for assistance. And, objectively, he has to recognize that they're probably up to their asses and alligators. But behind the military deference, there's fear, too. Fear of him. Pierce, this is... He waves a hand in the direction of his own head. Me, here, for want of a better word. Yes, sir. Pierce doesn't look convinced. It's the same fear that everyone at the SGC has been living with for years. That someday you'll see someone you know, a colleague, a friend, snaked. And you'll have to make that split-second call. Try and capture them alive, put a bullet in their head, or just run like hell. And the exact brand of snake doesn't make a lot of difference, because the ones who weren't there for Kowalski have all heard the stories about Jolinar. Flash of memory, he'd gone to the zoo with thinking about that keep your fucking hands off a zookeeper sitting with an armful of python telling the gaggle of children that it was harmless that they could reach out for themselves and feel that it was dry not slimy at all while the kids clutched each other and shrieked in gleeful terror lost cause if there ever was one that's millions of years of evolution telling monkey brains to be afraid of things that crawl and things that skitter and things that slither. And you can Daniel Jackson all you want about how physical forms shouldn't matter, but human instincts are there for a reason. Hey, Jack. Kanan. Jacob. Selmak. That freaky double vision again, as if Jacob's transparent, nothing but a shell, embodiment for the sharp, vivid presence of Selmak. Wise and beautiful and terrible. As an army with banners, the host involuntarily finishes the thought. One of the oldest surviving among them, most revered and most whispered about. Out of the corner of his eye, he can see Pierce turning away, grateful for the rescue. Coward. 
He's never had a problem with Jacob before. Always gotten along fine. Not bothered by the snake unless it chose to pop up in a conversation. Which it didn't do often. Only when there was a need for its input. And Jacob never seemed bothered by it. And yeah, he was glad for Carter that she got some more time with her dad. That the prize for the Faustian deal never came due. Even if a tiny part of him was always waiting for it. Come on, Jacob says. We've got the tin cans from E through K, Jack. I'll introduce you around if you like. We even got an email hookup for the data burst through the gate, finally. Though you'll have to go over to the base canteen if you want to grab a coffee. Which, frankly, I wouldn't recommend because... You don't want to know what it does to symbiote nervous systems. Jacob's voice. Jacob's words. But the brisk kindness has a flavor of Selmec to it. And how the hell did he never see that before? Not that he'd really known Jacob before he got snaked. But he knew Carter. And her relationship with her dad was tough enough even before she knew about the cancer. Before the snake. And then, afterwards, it gotten so much easier. Shit. Shit! Maybe the Tok'ra were all faking it right from the start, because it's not like anyone had a way to check. Not without one of those Tolian gizmos, which the Tolian, oh so conveniently, wouldn't share. But the thought won't stick. Slides off the other thoughts in his mind like an unglued label. No pretense. Only the nature of blending. Two minds growing into each other. Reactions shaped by the same memories. Impossible for consciousness to be shared without thoughts overlapping. Boundaries blurring. Blending. Until who controls the body or the voice at any given time may be the least important detail. Nothing more than a matter of convenience or courtesy to differentiate symbiote and host for the benefit of others. He remembers the bitter, sardonic relish his host, former host took in playing the minor Guauld, dripping arrogance through their voice, feeding him the words to deflect suspicion, kneeling and prostrating them at Zibakna's feet with a grace that made it a dance, a private mockery of the other underlings groveling, lording it in the face of the enemy that had enslaved and nearly killed him knowing that he was the splinter under their skin. The memories will come to hurt less as time passes, he knows, becoming less like the phantom pain of a lost limb and more like a part of what remains, woven into his genetic structure, the traces of his past host that he carries with him. Jack and he and this new host are already deeply blended, entangled in a mesh, the sarcophagus making the process an obscene parody of what it should be, if, when, the host is willing to acknowledge us, become more reasonable. You know what? He announces. I need some fresh air. He turns on his heel without waiting for a response and sets off across the stony ground heading towards the trees. Behind him, there's an exasperated sigh, and then Jacob, Selmec, is at his elbow, matching him stride for stride. So, you're determined to make this all as difficult as possible, Jacob says. Yep, pretty much. He grins broad and obnoxious and happy. It feels like the first time he's smiled in months. Good to know. Jacob stops in his tracks and says to his retreating back, When you change your mind, you know where to find me. But in his head, there's the suffocating knowledge that me is shorthand for us.
He keeps walking until he reaches the edge of the camp, the electrified fence buried deep among the trees. Standard protocol. You can scan the planet from the air all you like, but you can't scan the whole landmass down to the micro level. And nobody wants to get bitten in the ass by whatever turns out to be lurking in the woods on P3X whatever. Whether it's bloodthirsty tree weasels or hallucinogenic fungus. Still, if they're following protocol, the fence will extend a few more meters underground. And even if he could get under it or over it, they'd send out the UAVs and find him again eventually. The gate's right at the edge of the camp and heavily guarded, but he's not batshit enough to risk hurting his own people. Not anymore. He's not seriously considering a breakout anyway. The snake in his head spoils the fantasy. No way to run far enough and fast enough to get away from that. Instead, he makes a right turn and paces along the perimeter. The trees here are tall and narrow as telephone poles, evenly spaced. Spruce and hemlock, or close enough cousins. Back in the woods again, only this time there's a fence around him and no imaginary friend to promise that if he goes home, it all can be fixed. The fact that he's not seeing dead people anymore should feel like a net gain in sanity, but instead, it only feels like another sort of loss. Daniel's back up on his cloud again, he figures, chanting mantras of non-interference. Part of him is yearning for the safety of tunnels, buried safe and secure, hidden, above grounds too exposed and too vulnerable, the skies too big. He grimaces, doesn't want to know about the snake's Freudian issues, thanks, doesn't want to know any of it. The last few days have been a cold war, trying to tune out the silent insistence that he name a way of making this right, cooperate, be reasonable. And beneath it, the equally implacable certainty that he, he should, that eventually he will, that surely he must. It hasn't tried to talk, hasn't been pushing for more time and control of the body, and just watches through his eyes, waiting and wanting, and that's more than enough. Underneath all the crap about honoring his wishes, he gets the sense that it feels like it's owed time and control of the body, like the times when he's asleep aren't enough, when it spends hours doing God knows what. Doing nothing. Nothing that the host does not remember. Nothing that he would not permit. Like it has a right to share the body. No, shit. Not the body. His body. The fucking things infecting how he thinks. Like it thinks this is its body too. He does not understand how else he can be expected to think. Like it does not have a body of its own. Not one you'd want, admittedly. But this is the body in which he lives in the world. The senses through which he experiences it. Not the symbiote's body. Darkness, heat, immobility. The claustrophobic press of tissue and bone. The face he is learning to wear in his mind's eye. Could the host think of himself, his self, as two convoluted hemispheres of gray tissue? Coils, smooth as toothpaste. Trapped, blind, and deaf in the bone case of his skull? A perspective shift, then. Like one of those optical illusion trick pictures. The flip of perception that makes two faces out of a vase, and he's getting the snake's sense of itself, a vague human outline, tall, solid, male, that's already adjusting to include cropped gray hair, distinguished, 
and long, narrow fingers. Trying to settle into this new self, cramped and frustrated by the host's constraints. The fucking snakes starting to think it looks like him. He lengthens his stride. Walking isn't enough to burn off the itchy restlessness, the sense of being cut off, not owning his own body. But he needs to get away somehow. Better to be a moving target. He's nearly completed a full circuit of the camp, trying not to think about zoos, by the time the Tok'ra come and find him. Two of them, and he wonders why they come in pairs, like the two who trail behind Aeneas every time she turns up at SGC like the proverbial bad penny. He did not expect Toran to come, unreasonable to have expected it. Hey, fellas, he gives them a shit-eating grin. They stop at a safe distance, and he thinks of tossing a stone at them to see if they startle away like cows. Names fall into place involuntarily, Ardash and Varen, and memories with them, knowledge that goes back thousands of years, shimmering images of past hosts lapping over the mental sense of Ardesh's dry caution, Varen's scholarly mildness. Too much, too overwhelming, and geez, couldn't the snake get a handle on need to know before it starts shoving its memories at him? But he isn't. Wouldn't. These are the host's memories, too, now. How the hell do they stand it? trapped with the same tiny, shrinking population of people for centuries, until everyone knows everything about everybody. No secrets, no doors. Makes small-town Minnesota look like Manhattan. The security of being known, being trusted, nothing to explain or excuse. Canaan, one of the snakes says, Varen, Ardash, Rosencrantz, and Guildenstern. He doesn't care which one is which, so it doesn't matter if he remembers. Nope, he says jauntily. Want to leave a message? The snake hesitates, then exchanges a glance with its companion. The thing about snake baiting is that they never get it. Not really. But they get that they don't get it. All except the really dim ones. And that annoys the heck out of them. We have been sent to show you to the Tok'ra accommodations. Ardash continues in the same neutral tones, as if he hadn't said anything. Why? Another hesitation. And he wasn't supposed to ask, why? They didn't come briefed for that. And then, you would surely be more comfortable among your own kind. Not wandering around where other people can see him, see how much the Tok'ra fucked him over. They'd like to have him securely out of sight somewhere, the crazy relative chained up in the attic. Like hell, they're his kind. What would make me comfortable? is knowing you guys have a way to fix this. A longer pause, as if he's embarrassing them by asking at all. Terribly gauche, don't you know? We thought it was understood that the effects of the sarcophagus may be irreversible. In the few cases where we have extracted a Guauld symbiote who has kept the same host for centuries, the host has been left vegetative. It is rumored that some of the oldest system lords, such as you, and he's never hated that pun more, may be incapable of taking new hosts. He knew as much, whatever the host may have pretended to hope. Still, to hear it spoken aloud, 
This is his last toast, then. The one he will die with, whether that death is a century away, when the host's body begins to fail, or days away in a gold attack. That's not what you told the SGC. Impassive faces, hands clasped in front of them. We gave no assurances. We informed the SGC that, with more opportunities to observe your condition, we might be better able to understand its nature. In any case, we expect that many of the problems you are experiencing will naturally ameliorate with greater sharing. Sharing? See, now that's the problem. Don't think I need any more sharing. In fact, you could say that I'm having an oversharing issue here. Further research into extraction would require a substantial commitment of resources for what are essentially unique circumstances. We cannot favor the convenience of one over the fight against the Gua'uld. Venna and Risa... So many dead. Massacre and retreat and evacuation, losing more of their numbers each time, as Anubis and his pawns force them into flight, using their extinction as a gift to buy the allegiance of other system lords, until the few hundred refugees huddled in Ta'ari shelters on this empty planet may be more than a third of their population. Nice martyr act, Skippy. Nothing like a noble cause to justify screwing people on the details, huh? So, you guys ever let your hosts talk? He inquires casually. Memory starts providing instances, indignation rising, and he shoves it aside. Not the point. Another wordless exchange of glances. Like, they all know each other so well, they're freaking telepathic. But then, the second snake, Varen, dips its chin and blinks, then looks up again, his expression open and friendly. If it's better, with the beaky nose and freckled skin somehow, the owner of the body come out to play. What do you want to know? No name pops into mind this time, the snake doesn't remember the host's name, if it ever knew it. Probably doesn't consider minor details like that worthy of its attention. But he hadn't expected his bluff to be called like that, and now he's stalled. What does he want to know? How are you okay with this? How can you be? How can you be so desperate to stay alive that you'd trade your body to the snake? But it feels too like a concession, like admission of something, the same way you did, something in his head taunts, and he doesn't think it's a snake. He clears his throat. So, what's your story? Why'd you let them put a snake in your head? A flinch at the intrusion of the question on the deeply private relationship between symbiote and host. There are only ever a few reasons, and all of them are bitter. The Morgana destroyed my homeworld, the young man says calmly, and he recognizes Varen's studious calm, soothing over the rawness of wounds that never heal. Cities burning, planets burning, Gua'uld, destroy for tactical advantage, as retaliation, or for the pleasure of it, just because they can. I could have starved among the ruins, or died of disease like my family. Instead, I chose to become Tok'ra, to fight. Nothing he can say to that. That was fifty years ago, the host adds. Not so young after all. Then something sharp breaking through the calm. Is that enough to answer your question, or is there more you want to know? 
but he's seen it. He has, not the snake. The times when they've come through the gate to find smoldering rubble where a town stood the week before, or a village after a punishment raid by Jaffa, hut still standing, empty, except for the corpses, slit throats or chests blown open by staff blasts, a baby in its cradle one time, thrown back into a pile of bloody blankets. The SGC has done what they can, sometimes. They've evacuated a small handful of refugees, shuffled them to other planets, and left them with tents and MREs and a sack full of seed corn. There's one little girl from Hanka who's in high school and has a dog, and that has to count for something. But there are millions, maybe billions, of humans transplanted across the galaxy, enslaved by the Gua'uld. Memory, on his knees in the mud, all his weight hanging from his wrists. Not his wrists, not then, not yet, but still his memories. Spitting curses at the Jaffa until the whip tore another strip of flesh from his back and took the last of his words away with it. When he doesn't answer, Baron's host nods once, then dips his head again, eyes flaring gold as the snake returns to control, bright as a reflection in a cat's eyes that spell out Predator. Apparently, that's all the time in the driver's seat the host gets. May we be permitted to speak with Canaan now? The snake inquires, the same voice through the distortion, but the inflections are different. It reminds him of a telemarketer who's inadvertently ended up on the phone with a six-year-old. Can I talk with your mom or dad now? Is there a grown-up in the house? Like they've decided it's easiest to talk to the snake direct now. Cut out the middleman. And the snake wants to talk to them, too, pulling out of its own memories, holding them away from him, as if for once there's something it doesn't want him to share. He can feel the bitten tongue sensation of its frustration return. He will abide by the host's wishes. Sure it will. Well, if it's so keen to abide by his wishes, his wish is that it not talk. Because that worked so fucking well last time. Had enough of that to last him a lifetime. Thanks. He tilts his head from side to side, pretending to consider it. The two snakes don't move a muscle, standing eerily still but he can tell they're getting twitchier anyway. How about... No. Petty. But he'll take his entertainment where he can get it these days. He would be willing to wait until the host is asleep if that would cause less distress. Yeah, nice try. Don't even think about it. He is coming to think that the host is determined to be unreasonable. What do you know? Skippy's a slow learner. Ardesha's gaze shifts somehow, and he gets the creepy sense that he's become transparent, that it's looking right through him, Snake talking direct to Snake. Kanan, we are sorry that your blending with your host is still unresolved. Perhaps in time, with patience, you will be able to bring him to a better understanding of our ways. Translation clear as day in the snake's mind. The onus is on him to ensure that his host sees matters in the proper light. In other words, the snake should make him shut the fuck up and stop being a public embarrassment. No, no, no Tokra symbiote would make a host do anything against his will. They would not ask that, would not expect it of him. Silent, squirming humiliation, 
He's already broken ranks in front of outsiders by accusing the council of blending him with a host who did not consent. That will not soon be forgotten. Now the host must go out of his way to ensure that everyone knows that they are broken, incapable of behaving with respect and dignity. The Tokras stand and watch as he walks away from them. The scar on his neck itches, the mark of a host taken by force, the mark of a Gwauld. The patter of rain on dry pine needles startles him awake. Cold and dark, a light rain condensing out of the mist. The snakes hunkered down under a tree, arms folded on his knees, balanced on the balls of his feet despite the heavy boots. Memory says it's been there for hours, perfectly still, gazing into the dark. And humanly still, creepy bastard that it is, casually twisting his body up like a bendy toy, as if his joints were supple rubber and flexible wire instead of aging human cartilage. Watching the dark, pointedly, pedantically, obeying the host rules, doing penance. There are times when it almost seems like a person, then he reminds himself what it is, cold, unreadable snake eyes, watching the world from behind his own, remembering still. His eyes were shut by then, forehead pressed against the wooden post, and he did not see, but remembers remembers being the petty Gwauld lordling who threw a handful of copper into the mud, contemptuous payment for a half-dead slave, the sort of inexplicable divine whim that no mortal dares question, then flicked his fingers for the Jaffa to carry him home like a side of beef from the market, who bent over him as he lay on the chamber floor, cold stone against his bleeding back, hurting too badly to fear what cruel entertainment the false god might have planned, too weak to move but not to spit, not to hate them all. And the gold recoiled, face twisting in anger before it smoothed out suddenly, before he wiped the spittle away, blood-stained slime on his fingers, cleaned off carelessly with a fold of brocade robe, and said in a human voice, not his, but his, remembered too. We are not what you think. He shudders, dizzy again, enough to send a ripple across the surface of the snake's poise, and he feels the familiar sensation being tipped back into control of his own body. He wobbles and braces himself with a hand, then shifts to sit his ass down on the ground. Damp pants be damned. Nothing he can do. He did not choose this, but he is the one here, bound to remedy it, torn by the violation of the host's will. Not Tokra. But he fears that nothing he can do will ever be enough. The host will never be satisfied. He is bound by duty, and the host is not. The more he honors the host's wishes, the more the host works deliberately to make them outcast. Can't win for losin', somebody's thought. Come on, he says as he stands. On your feet. His eyes have adjusted to the dark, and he moves through the night as easily as through daylight. The drizzle dies away soon enough, and it's easy to tune out the chill. He doesn't even have to shiver unless he wants to. There should be an ache in his bones to let him know the weather's changing, all the places where they've been broken and reset and broken again. But of course, there isn't. Something else that's been taken from him. Like he asked the snake to come in and fix him, 
overhaul an aging human body until it runs like it's fresh off the production line. Probably would have taken his scars away, too, if it could. He thinks of heading over to the central buildings, the human ones, offices and infirmary and canteen. Even if he's not officially billeted there, they can't stop him hanging around, reminding them that he's still human. He's pretty sure they can't anyway. But then he remembers that it's night. The Ta'ari sleep at night, and their operations slow down accordingly. There won't be anyone awake except for the few on watch. The buildings are dark and silent, and he walks on past them. From the high ground around the camp, the movement of firelight between the tents catches his attention. When he gets closer, he sees silhouettes passing in front of the bonfire like shadow puppets. Makes sense. Kelnorin only takes a few hours a night, so he guesses Jaffa have to find other ways of occupying their time. He can smell meat cooking, and it looks like there's some kind of animal being roasted over the flames. Pierce must have given them permission to hunt outside the camp perimeter, or would have if he's smart. It takes the sight one step closer to self-sufficiency and away from relying on the gate to send MREs halfway across the galaxy. Teal's probably down there, and he could use some of that calm companionship even if the thought of walking into a Jaffa encampment is making the snake nervous. Especially. Especially if. He sees the sentry before she sees him. Still isn't expecting her to jump up and shove the business end of a staff weapon in his face, though. Getting on better? My ass. In the shifting light, he can see a tall, scrawny woman with the emblem of Cronus on her forehead. He's about to tell her that he's here to see Teal'c, but then the firelight jumps and shifts, reflected in the puddles on the muddy ground, surrounded by Jaffa, which by eye too far away, out of reach. Light sears across his retina, and he knows his eyes must be flaring. He hears the familiar bzzzt and crackle from the staff weapon as it's activated. What is your business here, Tok'ra? I'm not a fucking Tok'ra, he snaps without thinking. The sentry tilts her head in a weirdly familiar gesture, eyes hard. Then you are Gua'uld. Don't. This could take some fast talking. No, I am not a... Jaffa Cree. It is not a shout, but pitched to carry effortlessly across space, and his knees sag with relief at the voice. Disconcerting to feel relief at the arrival of a Jaffa, but this Jaffa is different, an exception, carrying stillness and compassion with him. The sentry snaps to attention as Teal'c approaches, beginning, This one is Onak'tar, but says he is no Tok'ra, and then stops instantly as Teal'c raises a hand, regal in his robes. Slaves, with the mentality of slaves. But he didn't think that. He's always thought that the rebel Jaffa are okay, as far as it goes, even if they do tend to think with their staff weapons. Centuries of creeing don't do a lot for independent thought. O'Neill is of the Ta'ari. Teal'c meets his eyes before he continues remorselessly. And of the Tok'ra also. He is not just speaking to the sentry. Some of the Jaffa, seated round the fire, turn to look as Teal'c hits full-on oratory mode. He is one of the great warriors of the Ta'ari, who have freed many thousands from enslavement to the Gua'uld. By his hand died Ra, Apophis, Hathor, and many other false gods. Not like he personally killed them with his bare hands, 
the way Teal'c's making it sound, there were a bunch of other people involved. And, on several occasions, tactical nukes. But Teal'c's giving him the look that says, Back my play or else. And he can read the situation well enough. He's walked into the crossfire, and Teal'c's playing political theater to get him out of there with his skin intact. So he nods and smiles and scuffs his boots until Teal'c pauses for breath and then says, Well, it was nice stopping by. Is that the time? I should... Teal'c's hand wraps around his arm, gently, but it feels like a steel band. Remain a while, he says. You are welcome amongst us. Even if I have to personally kick the ass of anyone who disagrees, his tone implies. The sentry is scowling. Return to your duties, Teal tells her, without another glance in her direction. And something clicks in his mind, something that's been waiting to fall into place ever since he heard that Cree. This is Teal's command voice. Enough steel to make people snap to follow before they think twice. The casual assumption of authority that demands it. Convince them that you've never imagined for a heartbeat that they'd be dumb enough to argue. And they'll breathe a sigh of relief and not imagine it either. He's spent a lifetime practicing that tone. Never heard in Teal'c's voice before, though. And yeah, he knew that Teal'c was commanding armies before anyone at SGC was out of diapers, but he didn't know. You didn't tell me, he said, and shit, his throat's sore again. You'd left. Teal'c regards him. You were aware that I was residing at the Alpha site. That's not what I... He scrubs a hand through his hair. You know what I mean. But he doesn't need to wait for an answer. It doesn't matter what's down on paper, in the files in Hammond's office, whether they've filled out the forms yet, whether Teal'c's scented candle collection's still in storage for him somewhere in the mountain. It's a done deal. O'Neill... Teal'c says. I joined the Ta'ari because I believed that you were the best hope of freeing my people. It has been an honor to serve by your side, but now my people must pursue their own freedom. My place is here with them. So long it's been nice knowing you? It comes out more bitter than he intended. Teal'c's eyes are dark and sad, but his expression doesn't change. The rebel Java and the Ta'ari will remain allies. General Hammond believed that my presence here would assist in maintaining that alliance. Then something glimmers behind the mask, and he adds, Had I remained at Stargate Command, I would have been assigned to another unit under the command of another leader. I preferred otherwise. No, he can't see Teal'c meekly following Reynolds or Harper or, God help him, Ivanova. He's always known that Teal'c's loyalty was personal, a private allegiance given to him and then to Hammond, not to the Air Force or the United States. First prime of O'Neill, someone had said once, not knowing he was an earshot. There have been times when he's tap-danced like crazy to keep other people from finding that out, when suspected loyalties could have landed Teal'c in NID's cell. Still, he swallows past the ache in his throat. That's... A hell of a thing, T. 
heel, bows his head, and says, with formal grace, and only the slightest twitch of the corner of his mouth, As you would say, back at ya. This time, when Teal'c meets his eyes again, he gets the sense that Teal'c is talking to the snake, too. Ironic that the Jaffa can see him when the host cannot. I could not have remained on Earth forever, he continues. It is difficult to be an alien among the Ta'ari. A message even if he does not know which of them it is addressed to. Both, perhaps. He knows that any courtesy the Jaffa extends to him is for the host's sake, that as much as anything else, it is a warning. I see and know you. But it is courtesy, still. I believe that Jonas Quinn found it so also before his death. Teal adds quietly. But Jonas was always way weirder than Teal'c. He wants to protest. Teal'c's just... Teal'c. Jonas was far more alien, with his too-wide smile, like someone who picked up his idea of how to be human from 1940s public information films. How to be wholesome and hygienic. We support the war effort! always trying to fix something that couldn't be fixed. Shiny as an apple, that's rotten at the core. Memories turn over like cards, as if he can read his own fate there. Another alien who made himself a traitor and outcast from his own people, who came to Earth because he believed it was his duty, who failed in his moment of crisis and then spent the rest of his life trying to pay for it, and died without having paid enough. Even his death is not enough to abate the resentment the host feels for him. That's not true. He put Jonas on the damn team, didn't he? That's a thing about the snake. The worst thing? It sees everything and doesn't get any of it. Now... He wonders if Teal'c and Jonas talked about things together. What they talked about. What do aliens say to each other when the humans aren't listening? Daniel's voice in some long-ago argument. You have heard of Copernicus, Jack? I should. He waves a hand into the night. Do something. Go somewhere else. You do not have to leave, Teal'c says. You would be welcome to join us for our repast. Welcome to join the Resident Aliens Club. He can smell the charred meat, and the snake thinks it's a better prospect than pizza, judging by the fact that it doesn't smell strange the way everything else does. Which is a surprise, somehow, not that he'd put much thought into its dietary preferences. Really rather not, thanks. But with that level of sanctimoniousness, he'd have expected the Tok'ra to be vegans. They seem like the kind of people who think tofu's food. Then again, snakes. Not like their Gualdi ancestors were eating plankton before they decided that, hey, Wrapping themselves around people's brainstems and taking over their bodies might be a fun evolutionary lifestyle choice. The memories that trickle up have the tang of something primordial, wordless and timeless, genetic memory millions of years old, compressed into blurred, underwater vision and sharp hunger, the sting of electrical currents, the dull infrared of blood heat, and the impulse to lunge home, sever the spinal cord, paralyze the prey. Somewhere. Some. When. The discovery that neural regeneration let them do more than paralyze. The long, 
slow awakening to light and air and speech. It leaves him feeling nauseated again, his tongue slippery with the memory of alien blood. You do not have to leave, Teal'c says. Yeah, he says, and takes a step back into the dark. I do. The End of Chapter 4